Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, hey, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Dinah Fisher. All right, now normally we're live on WNUR, FM Evanston, Chicago. This week, the radio station is closed for renovations, and so we're doing our podcast-only show. Tonight... I go inside the huddle with Rina Ahmed, the founder and artistic director of Third Eye Theater Ensemble right here in Chicago. We talk about the company's upcoming season, as well as their unusual mission statement, it will surprise you. But first, it's chalk talk. Dinah and I react to a recent interview with German mezzo-soprano Christa Ludwig, in which she speaks candidly about today's superstar singers and why they might not be as good as they think they are. Check out the original article on our website, operaboxscore.com. And lastly, but not leastly, it's the two-minute drill. All the opera headlines from the past week that you need to know, plus our hot takes on them. And before we go any further, of course, let me wish everybody a happy St. Patrick's Day, which was last Friday. Good old St. Patrick's getting rid of all the snakes in Ireland. Actually, uh... Do you know what St. Patrick said when he drove the snakes out of Ireland? You boys wearing your seatbelts back there? Dinah Fisher, great to have you on the show again. Dinah, of course, sitting in for Math and Black. He was supposed to do the show, but sick as a dog with the flu. So really appreciate it to Dinah to get you back on the show, of course. Where have you been all my life? I have been in school. <laughs> and uh, so this past month, our show finally went up last Weekend. Swore Angelica. Angelica and Johnny Skeeky Double Bill. And you were playing. I was the abbess. I had a huge cape that was sweeping across the stage the entire time, saying about... Well, that sounds like fun. Yeah, it was great fun. Uh, <laughs> Queen of the Nuns. Um, so that's done. I'm on spring break. I only have one quarter left until I graduate. You can smell the graduation. Like, it's just... Yeah, I'm also terrified. But yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's so close yet so, so far. Um, so just some things, housekeeping on my end. Go ahead. What's going on? Um, I got into the Ames summer program in Austria, so I got into their opera studio and I will be going to, uh, Graz for six weeks and I will also be competing in the My Sizzinger competition and singing for some agents. I also got selected to compete at the Neue Stimmen competition in Chicago. So if I place, they fly me out to Germany in October and I get to compete live on TV in Germany. <laughs> You're going to be all over German-speaking Europe. You know that Woo-hoo! makes me happy. I know that makes me happy because I love it. I Pretzels, versed in beer. That's just why beer. I'm happy for you. I don't care about the singing thing. No, just it's just food. all the food. That's really actually why I'm going. It's just to eat. <laughs> uh, no, actually, the um, being in Austria, it's six weeks, you said, yeah. the program? Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, it's a good good chunk of time. I'm doing both. I'm actually doing both leader and opera because I love leader, if not more than singing opera, because there's so much going on in such a short amount of time. And the la- it's all about language. And that's I love it. So Back here in both. Chicago, have you seen any shows recently? I saw Carmen last night. And? And so, I, so the last time I saw Carmen, it was a snooze fest. I think it was about five years ago. So this was a whole new production, set in the 30s, new costumes, sexy Carmen. Uh, she was amazing. And the I really loved the production. It was a lot of dancing. It was colorful. It was like the house was packed full of little kids, 
to seniors. Like, every age range was at the show yesterday. It was packed. Um, they had, like, a ballet dance between Carmen and Don Jose. So Don Jose was, um, was like, what, what the, tor- what is it called? Toreador. Toreador, oh my god. Toreador, and Carmen was a bull. So they had these dancers kind of following them around the entire opera, kind of dancing out what was happening and eventually we all know what happens to Carmen. When you say it, it sounds so literal. When you saw it, it was probably <laughs> awesome. It was. It wasn't like they were shadowing them. It was like one scene was happening here that was mirroring the singing that was happening and it was really elegant. It wasn't it, it wasn't like, sh- you know, it, it wasn't cheesy. The production was directed by Rob Ashford, who's a Great. famous Broadway choreographer, and it's still running till... The 26th? Okay, so you got a couple more chances to see it. I know I'm going to miss it, which is a shame because I'm directing it this summer. That's fine. So it would probably behoove. Can I say behoove? Behoove. Yeah. To go with the bull metaphor, <laughs> the, the hooves. Oh um, it would behoove me to see the production. But uh, we have some opera. Yeah. To talk about. Yeah. So let's do that instead. Cool. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. All right. Our Chalk Talk segment tonight revolves around an article taken from Limelight Magazine, which is Australia's classical music and arts magazine. This was an interview with the mezzo-soprano Krista Ludwig. She just turned 89. Link to the article on our website, operaboxscore.com. Dinah, what do we need to know historically about Krista Ludwig? Well, she was born in Berlin, so she's from Germany. She uh, debuted as Orlovsky in Die Fledermaus in Frankfurt. So she started kind of as a light, you know, the, the basic light lyric mezzo she gradually um as she got older started seeing dramatic roles so along with doing dorabella um cherubino she started singing interested in his old um she was in Lohengrin, electra um so she was kind of like mezzo soprano Fischenfach kind of but she was mostly known for mezzo and mostly known for her um leader works and she just sings Brahms. So <laughs> I actually, I chose, I was listening to her and I picked uh, some songs that she did of Brahms for my own recital because she just sings them so beautifully. So she's a true icon in the opera world, but not in a starlighty way. <laughs> Very interesting you say starlighting because in this article, which... Technically, she was being interviewed by the Swiss publication NZZ. The article was then reposted in Australia, which is where we got the link from. She talks a lot about what a star is, how important that is, or how important that isn't. She also takes a couple singers to task in this article as well. But let's start at the very beginning. She says that... um, When she was asked if she wanted to become a star, she replies that it isn't something one thinks about, one just becomes it, Mm. adding that she believes she was lucky that her rivals at the time were either too old or too young. I'm quoting the article here. But Dinah, what is your personal take on that? Like, don't you actually think about being a star as a performer? Um, I think everybody wants that, you know, the applause at the end and the the four bows and... If that makes you, I think being a star is like an interpersonal journey. I think I'm a star, you know, but maybe the world doesn't see it that way. And in today's heavily social media world, uh, we take certain certain opera stars that maybe are very good looking that also have maybe the chops to back it up, but maybe they're not actually the best at what they do. And that's a really hard thing to cope with. As a singer, like Jonas Kaufman is very attractive. He's hot. He has a interesting voice. He doesn't sound like a tenor. He, you know, he has this really interesting dark voice. Is he the best singer out there? Probably not. But he's been in vogue. He's gotten interviewed. He has, you know, interesting stuff going on. Anna Trebko is everybody's soprano. It's either her or Renee Fleming. And it's mostly Anna right now. She's also very sexy. Um, she has an Instagram account that's hilarious. 
Um, What's on her Instagram? It is just like her and crazy outfits, like wearing Kermit the Frog dresses and like, oh my, you have to go to her Instagram. If you just search Anna Trebko on Instagram, it is the most fun you'll ever have this year so far. Um, she's funny. She's lively. She's personable. And I think that helps. And she's also a great singer, you know? So I don't mind that. But is she the best soprano? Absolutely not. <laughs> and that's what Ludwig talks about in this article. She says, quote, If today it is said that Netrebko, who has a lot of advertising, is the best opera in singer in the world, this is not true. Apart from Netrebko, there are many that are not known. In five years, we will have another Netrebko. So mm -hmm. there's two things there. First of all, uh, Ludwig talks about advertising. I, I think what she means is social media. Yeah. Right? For sure. Which is not untrue. There's no. a way that, like, your own advertising is your social media presence. What about this idea of, like, in five years we will have another Netrebko? Well, it's just one of the, you know, stars come and go. There are the greats. Renee Fleming is a great. Uh, or Placido Domingo, Pavarotti, were they in social media? They were great. And that's what made them great. Um, but with Anna Trebko, yeah. And about even now, she's kind of fizzling out a little bit. <laughs> I'm not hearing about her as much. Her face isn't in things as much. Maybe, you know, that maybe that's a personal choice of hers. She has a son and she got married, newly married to a new husband uh, a year ago or two years ago. So, you know, maybe she's just taking time for that. I don't, that you know, but yeah. It's a recyclable kind of situation. And I think what stays is the accomplishments. Like you can always look back at, you know, Chris Ludwig or uh, Anne-Sophie von Otter, who also is in Limelight. Susan Graham is so understated, but she's not Renee Fleming, but she sings with her name. But I was like, who's Susan Graham? And I'm like, she's like one of the best mezzo-sopranos in the world, but she just chills out in the back. You know, like, that's not her style. <laughs> I think that is a big difference in this idea of stardom, right? The difference yeah. between legacy mm -hmm. and notoriety, mm -hmm. right? Is that there's one type of star that is just notorious. And I might put Netrebko into that camp, mm -hmm. right? So, like, very well-known visually in terms of her personality in terms of her recordings. A question, though, would be, like, what's her legacy going to be? And I think there's other opera singers that are perhaps not as well-known as her mm -hmm. that are going to have a longer legacy. They're going to have affected more people at a more instinctual level. And I ask myself that question. When Ludwig here says people don't think about becoming stars, that is a woman talking in absolute 2020 hindsight i could not disagree with her more i guarantee you that she thought about being a star when she was in oh, her I'm 20s sure. because i think we're programmed to think that way as you do this more and more and more whether you're listening to this show and you are in opera in your 20s 30s 40s 50s 60s you're going to come at it from a very different perspective now that i'm in my late 30s like this idea of stardom it continues to decrease and you think less about notoriety and you think more about this idea of legacy. In the article, Krista Ludwig has some advice for young singers. And she says, quote, You can sing the wrong roles, or a woman can have a child too early, which is nonsense for the career, she says. <laughs> As a singer, one must wear blinkers. A stupid singer can still make a career, but that is so difficult. Okay, can you unpack that for me a little bit? <laughs> so well, yeah, I, I, I actually had to read this statement a few times, and I'm rereading it again with you now. So you can sing the wrong roles. Uh, a lot of singers are pressured, especially younger singers, are pressured to sing bigger roles than maybe they're capable. Uh, maybe they're singing in the wrong, completely wrong fach until they grow. So, okay. So that's something that could either make or break you. A woman can have a child too early, which is nonsense for the career. That whole stigma that you can't be a mother and a singer. Uh, I think a lot of... A lot of people in my generation are either opting to never have children or you have to give something up. Uh, and I'm trying to not make that happen. <laughs> so uh, make the career first, have baby in the middle, continue career. I don't know. This is, you know, like, I think it's something that I'll have to find out on my own. And I don't think I should have to sacrifice either because that's silly. Having a child, that's an interesting thing. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have director Walker Lewis on the show. 
He's a stage director. He's a dad. Also a colleague of mine. I cannot wait to hear what he has to say. <laughs> um, I sometimes wish I had had children earlier, actually. Really? I just don't see the logic behind like establishing a career and then having children. Because having children changes so many things about your life. It changes the nuts and bolts day-to-day programming Mm -hmm. and execution of your life. But it changes who you are as a person, of course. I would not be the director I am today if I didn't have kids. People say to me, Mm -hmm. how can you possibly be a dad and be an artist at the same time? How How can there be room for all of that in your life? And my response is, how could I not be an artist and a dad. Who would I be doing this for if I didn't have children? <laughs> Who would I have to slow me down? Who would I have to make me look at the world more carefully, mm. more slowly? Who would I have to force me to tell stories as clearly as possible if it wasn't for my kids? This is true. Kids are awesome. I, I just, I just, I have a thing as a woman. I think the pressure is as a woman, you have to go through the changes. Uh, and no one wants a big pregnant opera singer on stage. It's just not going to happen. It's absolutely true. (laughs) Certainly as a dad. Or playing, or an opera singer that's pregnant playing a boy. Not going to happen. So you're, you have to stop or give up maybe the opera stage to sing something else or you're just going to have to stop. And as a dad, I'm speaking from a privileged position where like (laughs) my body hasn't been altered irrevocably by having a child, right? I think that's maybe what she was saying. A woman. I think she was specifically maybe talking about the whole female aspect of carrying a child and how that really... uh, When Anna Netrebko was pregnant, her voice was completely different. It was much lower. Or it it was darker in color. And then postpartum, she was bigger. She gained a lot of weight, which she got crap for. Which I think is stupid. Like, the woman had a child. Um, So that was another thing. Her body was on display, she had a baby, and her voice changed, and she got bigger. So, I think that's maybe what she was talking about. I think it's absolutely what she's talking about, and I commend her for making some pretty insightful points. Something else that Krista Ludwig talks about in this article, again, it's on our website, operaboxscore.com, is overrated singers. And she, she names names. When we talk about overrated singers, what do you think the criteria are? Like... What factors are we looking at for a singer that we would consider to be over or underrated? Oh, that's... I think they give a good show, but maybe they're not the whole package all Mm -hmm. the time. I think as a singer, it's so easy to put on that show for that two to three hours and then be a complete on the side. (laughs) And that happens a lot. And I think what separates the 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 legacy people I'm not I'm making a huge statement the legacy behind the scenes people versus the people that are maybe in the limelight a little a little more is because maybe you know the people that are kind of more behind the scenes just kind of let things roll off and just are chill real people you know I'm this is a very broad thing but overrated singers happens all the time because maybe they're cute and they give a good show. Can they sing the best? Probably not. But, you know, the audience likes them. And, uh, but if they're not great to work with, you know, I don't, I don't know how far that can go. In terms <laughs> of directors, the way I might try and categorize overrated or underrated directors, I think that this profession rewards mediocrity. I think that administrations of opera companies like directors who are going to get the show done on time and under budget, even if it's not great, compelling art. And there's directors that are able to do that very well. That is a skill. That is a talent. Mm -hmm. But those same directors are then rewarded with doing additional shows at that Mm -hmm. opera company, with being rehired, even though they're not making anything that's life-changing. Maybe even the cast is not having a particularly enjoyable experience. So their artistic mediocrity is being rewarded. But when you look at their resumes, they've been everywhere. And for me, Mm -hmm. this leads to this quality of being overrated. The problem for the underrated directors, of course, is that nobody knows about them. Mm -hmm. Ludwig makes a similar point in her article as well is that like you do need some sort of sense of 
of notoriety. And it's a question of how do you achieve that in the world of today? How do you use your advertising, in quotes, mm-hmm. as Ludwig would say, how do you use everything at your disposal? Anything else before we wrap it up about um, this article? I love this article. I had a, it was nice um, to kind of hear a voice that, of someone that I admired that maybe, like, you didn't know who she was. And I was like, what? So it was nice to, it was nice to read an article not by a Renee Fleming, not by, uh, like, a Janet Baker or uh, even, like, Marilyn Horn. I've, I've read a lot of their autobiographies and listened to, and it's just like... I was a great singer by the time I was six. And then I was famous by 15. And I'm just like, what is, what is that life? Like, what were you doing? Like, I, like, that is not my life, you know? And I mean, singing was way different back then. They didn't have to multitask. A lot of them just stood and sang and it was, that was it. And now there's so much pressure to be everything all at once. But I, I admired her openness and like really cruel honesty at some point um i like this as a professional cost or as a professional although she felt committed to singing it did not it did come at a cost my vocal cords and i could not go to a restaurant after premiere so i'd leave but that is not deprivation it is self-evident that one wants to live for the profession and that was a pretty profound statement like i don't i have to miss out on a lot of things I don't go to concert, you know, I don't go to like loud music concerts the day before performance. I don't talk to anybody. I don't really, you know, I don't interact with the outside world to just kind of like control what's going on on the inside and be healthy. Yeah. So I appreciated it. Go read it. (laughs) Go read it. It's on our website, operaboxscore.com. You can also let us know what you're thinking on Twitter at operaboxscore. Coming up next... I talked to Rina Ahmed, who is the founder and artistic director of Third Eye Theater Ensemble right here in Chicago. They announced their coming season and they talk about why they program what they program. It's pretty unique. You definitely want to stick around for that. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Rina Ahmed, thanks so much for being on Opera Box Score. Yeah, no, thanks for, for having us on and featuring us. I appreciate any and all publicity. So, All right, so you're the founder and artistic director of Third Eye Theater Ensemble in Chicago. What was the genesis of the company? The genesis of the company. So there were a few things that kind of, I guess, occurred simultaneously um, that sort of brought everything together. Um, so... There was the tragedy that happened at Sandy Hook, um, and I remember just feeling very, um, like I wanted to do something to, you know, help society somehow. I know that sounds like a really lofty, strange thing to say, but I just, um, you know, I I felt this strong desire to want to do something, and so I kind of thought about, you know, what can I do, and of course, art and the performing arts is where my heart is and you know so I just kind of thought well maybe I do something with performing um and then at the same or around the same time uh somebody had suggested to me that I look at the medium uh because they thought you know it would be a great role for me to learn and so I I watched it on YouTube it was kind of a horrible performance in some ways. It's very campy and silly, but I actually really loved, um, I loved the piece and I just thought, wow, I would love to produce this and how do we do this? So that was, those two things coming together sort of were the birth of Third Eye Theater Ensemble. Um, And, you know, I looked at the medium and I kind of looked at I was looking at it from a more realistic perspective, not as what often people think of as, you know, being sort of campy. And I I guess I was looking at, you know, what are the themes in this opera? And, you know, for me, it was a lot about um, mental illness and what happens when that goes unchecked and is untreated and, um, you know, when alcoholism plays into that and then you 
have a weapon in the hands of somebody who, you know, is going through all these things and how those tragedies can happen. Well, I think that's a fascinating take on the medium to kind of do away with the ghost story part of it, which is normally highlighted, and really to focus on this very personal and topical, almost social justice angle to the piece. Did that inform the programming that followed that, this idea of social justice? Absolutely. Um, That's, in fact, what our... It's not necessarily part of our mission statement, per se, but we... You know, our mission statement is sort of more generic, but in terms of what we say is our goal is that um, we strive to champion operatic works that are new or seldom performed while advocating for social change. All right, so then moving on to your 2015 season when you programmed Sumeda's song by Mohammed Farouz, how did that work fit into this mission of social justice? Okay, so Sumeda's song... um, Again, there were, it's another opera that you can really pull a lot of different themes out of it. Um, but one of the things that it focuses on is this idea of honor killing. Um, and so, you know, this is something that it, the story takes place in Egypt. And, you know, unfortunately, these honor killings still take place today. And it's essentially, you know, it's sort of like the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? It's it's this person killed my family member, and so now it is passed on to the next family member that they have to go kill the person from the other family, right, who who murdered. I'm not making sense. <laughs> I'm not explaining it very well. But I think, you know, the gist of it is that it's – it's a family situation where you have two families that are that are feuding with each other, right? Um, and so, you know, there's this idea, obviously, of this this violence and these things that go on, you know, for years and years. And, you know, one of the things that was really poignant to me that, um, you know, one of our audience members actually pointed out is, you know, they said, this is something that, you know, it doesn't just happen in Egypt, right? This is happening on the streets of Chicago. It's it's not called honor killings, right? But you have gangs that are, you know, going after each other. It's it's the same sort of concept, right? So that, that was um, a big part of Sumeda's song that, that we looked at. All right, and then that production was followed last year by Nico Muli's opera, Dark Sisters. Uh, I've directed the piece before. It seems to me that of the three shows we've talked about, that is the most complex musically and in terms of personnel. Uh, in some respects, yes. I mean, she made a song was certainly complex from a music perspective, um, but Dark Sisters was definitely the largest piece that we've done to date. Um and yeah, again, there 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 are so many themes in that piece. Um, it's about the fundamentalist Church of Latter Day Saints, um, and in that, uh, I guess, sect you can call it, they practice polygamy, and it's the story of one man who's married to many women. Um, you can kind of. I guess, deduce from that that it's sort of meant to be the story of Warren Jeffs or, you know, somebody like him. Um, So it was really inspired by some of the raids on the the fundamentalist compounds. And so it's really just sort of understanding um, how religion affects people and what is right in terms of religion and, um, you know, within a community and, and where, where do people's rights lie? Because obviously these women are very repressed. Um, they're unable to, to speak their minds and to really have their own thoughts. And, you know, in the story we have one woman who decides to actually break free from the church and it's sort of her journey and, you know, looking at how she's able to kind of rise above her situation and, and 
you know, speak for herself. So when I look at this body of work as a whole and this theme of social justice is so strong, how is your programming next year going to fit into that model? So we just recently announced that our uh, fall production will be a piece called With Blood With Ink uh, by Daniel Crozier. And I'm actually, I should make sure I'm not 100% sure of his the pronunciation of his last name. Um, so once I have a chance to speak with him, I want to confirm that that's actually how it's pronounced. But um, the story of With Blood With Ink is about Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, who was um, a Mexican nun in the late 1600s. And she actually um, became a nun so that she could continue her writing, which was her true passion. Um, And of course, at this time, women weren't really supposed to be educated or have any part in education. Um, And Sor Juana was really um, a proponent of advocating for women's rights and for the education of women. And so it's, you know, very much her story and, you know, what happens to her and how the church views what she's doing. Because essentially, you know, some of her writing was rather controversial and especially in terms of what the church was looking at and their association with her. And they weren't exactly happy about some of the things that she was saying And, you know, she was eventually basically forced to renounce her work in order to continue to be part of the church. And how do you feel like this piece is going to play to a Chicago audience? I, you know, I hope it's going to play really well. I think it's a beautiful piece. Um, You know, it's got some beautiful music in it. It's very lyrical. Um, So, you know, it's, I think it's accessible from that perspective. Um, We are doing a couple things, or we plan to do a few things. Um, You know, we want to certainly reach out to um, the Mexican community. And, you know, it was suggested that we get in touch with the, uh, the Museum of Mexican History in the Pilsen neighborhood. Um, You know, so we want to definitely reach out to that community, and hopefully they will have an interest in coming to see see this work. Um, we actually did that with Sumeda's song in the Egyptian community. Um, we had some advocates within the Egyptian community who really helped us promote the show and brought in a large Egyptian um, a large Egyptian audience to see the show, and they were thrilled. In fact, we um, we were very fortunate to actually have the Egyptian consulate and other members from from his organization attend our show. So um, hopefully we can do the same with, with, uh, with Blood with Ink. And, you know, we're also going to partner with an organization yet to be determined, a nonprofit organization um, that will represent, you know, some of the themes that this work deals with. And we hope that we can bring in audience through that channel as well. So just making the conversation a little more general then for all of Chicago, how does Third Eye Theater Ensemble fit into the Chicago landscape in terms of storefront theater, uh, Chicago Opera Theater, Lyric Opera of Chicago? Well, I mean, certainly we have a very a wonderful uh, town filled with opera and, you know, we feel very fortunate to be a part of that. Um, you know, obviously what we do is very on a very small scale. Um, we're in small black box theaters. Um, we perform with piano only. That's not our goal forever, but that's, you know, what we can do at this point in time. And, you know, we – Lyric Opera, of course, is, you know – they're doing the large productions that cost a lot of money that have, you know, all the sets and costumes and, and that's great. There's absolutely a place for that. Um, Chicago opera theater, they do a little more of, you know, the lesser known works. So in some ways you could say we're more in line with what Chicago opera theater does, but on a smaller scale. And I think we have sort of a unique niche in that we are trying to, 
you know, really focus on the social justice piece of, of the works that we're doing. All right. And then to make the conversation even one step bigger, look into that crystal ball a little bit. I mean, what are you thinking in terms of on a national scale? What does the future hold for opera? Yeah, um, I certainly don't have a crystal ball, but I, you know, I certainly think that there are a lot of opera companies who, you know, the larger opera companies who are struggling financially. Um, and you can look at, you know, why that is. There's probably a number of different reasons, right? Um, but the bottom line is that they're, they are struggling financially. And so I believe there's still always going to be a place for those large companies. Um, I, I, truly believe that there will always be interest and there will always be people who want to participate in something like that. Um, but I also believe that the art form is changing. And I think, you know, these small companies like Third Eye and like Chicago Fringe, um, you know, we we are trying to find the things that the big opera companies aren't doing. And I think we're trying to reach out to other people who may not be going to the Lyric Opera or the Metropolitan Opera, right? And we're finding maybe a different set of audience members. Um, and I think that's what we need to keep going forward. We need to keep being creative and we need to keep finding new ways to engage new audience members, um, especially in this day and age where I truly believe people's attention spans are shrinking. So, for somebody to sit down and watch a three-and-a-half or four-hour opera, I think is very difficult. It's getting more difficult for people to do. And so, you know, one of the things that we look at is we, we look at the length of the shows that we're doing because I think that, you know, shorter operas are easier for people to to participate in, especially when you're talking about people who maybe don't have a background in opera. And so this is a great way to introduce them to opera. And then hopefully they do want to go see the three and a half hour, four hour operas. Thanks again to Rina Ahmed of Third Eye Theater Ensemble for her time and for the interview. Again, make sure you're going to see that show next season and continue to check out their work. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines from Opera Land. Everything you need to know in two minutes tops. Cincinnati Opera has announced that it will present the U.S. premiere of Another Brick in the Wall, the opera, based on the classic 1979 album The Wall by Roger Waters of the band Pink Floyd. The new opera will end the 2017-2018 season of the show that opened earlier this month at the Opera de Montreal. In an effort to stabilize its fiscal health, Seattle Opera has eliminated six full-time staff positions, restructuring the company with layoffs, closing its scene shop, and streamlining its music operations by combining casting, artist management, and oversight of the chorus and the orchestra into one area of the company. Port Opera, the Portland, Maine-based professional opera company, is changing its name to Opera Maine to better reflect its statewide mission. Artistic director Donna Devon said the new name also will help alleviate confusion about where the company is located. With the former name, many people mistakenly thought the opera company was in Oregon, she said. Crunching the numbers, the Met HD broadcast of Verdi's La Traviata tied the film La La Land at the box office last week, each pulling in $1.8 million. More stats. In the 2015-2016 season, there was a decline in Berlin opera audiences. Of the three opera houses in Germany's capital, the Deutsche Oper played to 238,000 people, the Komische Oper 192,000, and the Staatsoper 175,000. The Rossini Opera Festival and the Teatro Comunale di Bologna have announced their separation after 30 years. Each party is blaming the other for their own financial difficulties. Last week, German composer Wolfgang Rimm turned 65. He wrote the opera Caligula. And on this day, German composer Bernd Alois Zimmermann was born in 1918. He wrote the opera Die Soldaten. Fun fact, 
I've seen both of those in production. And plus this just in, the winners of this year's Metropolitan Opera National Council auditions have been announced. They are countertenor Arya Nospam-Cohen, mezzo-soprano Samantha Hanke, soprano Kirsten McKinnon, Heldon tenor Kyle Van Schoonhoven, and tenor Richard Smager with soprano Vanessa Vasquez. We'll have more about the competition on next week's show. That's the two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Dinah Fisher. All right, that's the two-minute drill. So, Dinah Fisher. <laughs> yeah. Great to have you back Woo-hoo, on the show. I'm back. Of course. I've missed it. Um, so, of all those headlines, and it was a pretty big two-minute drill this week, <sighs> which one do you have to talk about first? I would, I would like to talk about the Met HD trivia to making more money than La La Land. Take it away. So I, I'm sure all of you have seen La La Land. If not, yeah, go see it. Um, I was a bit skeptical going into La La Land because I am not a fan of actors singing, let alone singing and dancing like Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. You know, that doesn't exist anymore, really. So I was like, okay, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, we'll see what happens. Um, first time through, I cried and I loved it. And the second time through, I saw it with my fiancé. So my fiancé is not a musician. He was feeling some pretty strong feelings between parallels of our relationship and kind of what happened to them. Ouch. Except that we're getting married and they did not. So it was, it struck a little close to home as an artist. Um, But anyway, should I have thought it? I don't know. It was good. Was it the best movie I've ever seen? No. But... I think that's really cool that the, the at Met HD made more money. Well, it's very close. According it's really to the, close. <laughs> according to the figures on the Hollywood Reporter for box office receipts from last week, it was each show, La Traviata HD and La La Land were $1.8 million at the box office each. Yeah. Of course, La La Land overall has made almost $150 million. Wow. Let me just say right now, if anyone is in the movie business or in TV that also listens to the show, we opera people don't understand the types of numbers that you work with. When I do a show at Chicago Fringe Opera, the budget is less than 10000 I know, I'm looking and I'm like... M, does that stand for, what is that? Yes. <laughs> like M <laughs> on those box office receipts would stand for million, $150 million, which is also the budget for the NEA, but now that that's going away. But now that's going, right. We like, don't have to. You don't have to worry, worry about, that. about that. Let's talk some more numbers really quickly. Those numbers from the Berlin Opera audiences, I was surprised by a couple things there. First of all, that the Deutsche Oper plays to more people, 238,000 in a season, than either the Komische Oper or the Staatsoper. Again, these are the three big Berlin houses. At the same time, the Deutsche Oper's capacity or number of ticket sold was just at two-thirds, 67%. Komische Oper up to uh, over 80% and also Staatsoper at 83% as well. Now, Deutsche Oper, I think, is probably the biggest of those yeah. three houses. Have I been in all of them? Yes, I've definitely been I in haven't, all so of them. drink for me. <laughs> I will. Drink for you. <laughs> uh, but, the, but the repertoire is, is very different between the three of them. Deutsche Oper is perhaps the most conservative, and hello, it's Germany, so it's not that conservative no, repertoire. Komische Oper, run by Australian director Barry Kosky. He's reinvented musical theater at the Komische Oper. Those productions tend to be absolutely outrageous and totally brilliant. And then the Staatsoper... Hard to define what the Staatsoper is. Daniel Berenboim is the head of music there, the head conductor. The theater, they're in this uh, temporary Schiller Theater, which is absolutely tiny, and it's so beautiful. I love that. I saw Abduction from the Seraglio there in 2012, mm-hmm. which a production that absolutely changed my life. I will say, compared to Vienna... Numbers we talked about a couple shows ago. Wiener Staatsoper is at 98% capacity as a season average. 98%. Mm. That's like higher than, I would say, three quarters of any major league baseball 
that's stadium awesome. in this country, which that's, is fantastic. Oh, no, that's amazing. All right, back over to you, Dinah. Yeah. What's another article that you want to talk about? Let's do the Seattle Seattle Opera cuts six full-time jobs. I know, so Seattle Opera cutting these six full-time jobs, closing its scene shop. Oof. And this is a big opera company. This is what yeah. we would call a level one opera company. For this is a budget sure. of over $10 million. That's why I read this and I was like, what? They were, I don't know. The so fact bad. of the matter is, is that according to their spokesperson, Christina Murti, the company has, quote, been 2 to $3 million higher in its operating expenses than in annual revenue for more than a decade. Mm-hmm. I'm not a numbers guy. I really, night numbers give me night sweats. But how does that happen? (laughs) I don't know. How does that happen? That you, that you look budget in management and for 10 years running, their, their uh, budget for 2017 is $22.5 million. So basically they have 10% over on their operating expenses. My question is this, cutting six full-time SAP positions, how much of a dent is that really going to make? I don't know. I, I mean the the whole money management thing. The Met. I mean, <laughs> huge problem with that. And the he just was like, let's make live HD things, and they just got so in debt. It's hard. I think it's hard to balance opera <laughs> in this economy because it's so big that maybe they just I don't know they bit off more than they could. Closing do. the scene shop is interesting, That's and hard. it's true that most American opera companies don't open, uh, excuse me, operate their own scene shops, but they rely on right. other other commercial scene shops to build, to build sets and bring them in. So yes, I get that. Uh, however, I thought that that would be a, a place for. A rev, an incoming revenue stream that they could yeah. actually turn the tables on that and build other people's sets in that same scene shop. But they're getting rid of the scene shop. They are, I believe, are getting rid of their technical director and their director of production. I don't know how this company... How is that going to work? I, I don't understand. I mean, opera's built from every single, every single person. And if one person isn't doing their job, it just falls apart. Like... That's why I saw this, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to give them, you know, five more years and see what happens. It's so sad. It's so sad. So sad. The race is on to see which of these level one opera companies is going to fail first. There's only about 10 in this country. Right. And you can cut that number down to nine because we know the Met is going to be in perpetuity. I mean, honestly, it's really not going to fail. San Francisco. Chicago Lyric. San Diego. Houston, Dallas. I mean, which of these guys is going to tank first? That is a question. I think Lyric has a fighting chance. I believe in the spirit of Chicago. You're going for the homegrown champion. And it, I have a feeling that it will be... They're, they seem to be pretty smart about how to spend things. They have, they're not in debt like the Met was. They haven't let go of anybody. They're doing really cool, innovative things as... Uh, I get, like, inside little peeks because I'm friends with the social media manager at Lyric Opera, name-dropping Amanda. Um, And so I get to see what they're working on, and I think they're ahead of the game. So I'm rooting for Chicago. High praise. Stay in the high, like, the top five. (laughs) Back over to me. Here's an article that we talked about on the show last week. It's this production of Another Brick in the Wall, which... Uh, is, of course, the well-known Pink Floyd album, which, Dinah, you know about, right? I know nothing about it. Okay, I don't this even is know ridiculous. what it sounds like. I'm like, I was born, like, I was in the 90s. Okay, do you know who Pink Floyd is? I know who Pink Floyd is. Okay. I, I, I know. Does this sound familiar? We don't need yes, no I, education. So I know Pink Floyd. Okay. I have no, like, emotional bond with this with this album and the music. This is one of the first cassette tapes I ever bought. I didn't have cassette tapes. I know you're 12. Oh, no, actually I did. Um, I'm not 12. Last week on the show, we talked about this uh, production's just opened at Opera de Montreal, which is, of course, in the late 70s, where Roger Waters played the Another Brick in the Wall Okay, okay, I got it. The production is now coming to Cincinnati next season. I misspoke last week. I said that it was a rock opera. Oliver asked me that, although in a very confusing way, he asked me if it was a rock opera or not. (laughs) Go back and listen to last week's show. (laughs) Um, But I was wrong. 
It's not a rock opera. Oh, it's not? It is scored for an orchestra of oh. 70, Holy 48 God. chorus, wow. and 8 soloists. I'd see that, for it, sure. Looking at the production photos, I haven't been able to find a recording. I haven't been able to find a videotape yet. It looks like it is fully staged. I don't know, however, <laughs> like how much movement there really is in this piece. It feels to me like it's more like a ballet or possibly even a oratorio almost. Could I say yeah. that Roger Waters could have written an oratorio? In Yeah, maybe in, in a... The presence of of how it's going to be staged. Sure, I see that they have a. I'm going to say her name, Marie Chantal Valancourt. It's the costume designer. Uh, she worked with Cirque du Soleil. So if you know, so if you know what Cirque du Soleil is, you're going to have a little visual of. What Everybody's <laughs> wearing nude bodysuits. It's just going to be naked people oh flying on trapeze. Yeah, it's going to be the wait. Um, just kidding. And it's premiering in Cincinnati of all places. <laughs> what? <laughs> Now, credit where credit is due, the artistic director there, Evans McGarris, he has done a great job at bringing in some very unusual stuff into that house. I mean, again, it's very easy for us to make fun of Cincinnati and, like, the way they put... Is it chili con carne on spaghetti? Or they have, like, God, a weird thing that they do with chili. I know. Ohio. Yeah. Um, Ohio... Having grown up in Michigan, <laughs> Ohio is the axis of evil to me. Oof, it is anyway, the worst. Um, I really want to see this. I'd see it for sure. I'm sad it's in Cincinnati. I feel like it would be amazing in Chicago. Bring it, bring it to Chicago. I would, I would pay to see that. It sounds. I like this. Put in weird stuff in conservative places. I'm all about that. All about that. It's a great take on that show. Okay. All right, Dinah Fisher, back over to you. What's the next headline that you want to talk about? Uh, I would love to talk about the Teatro Comunale di Bologna pulls its orchestra and chorus from the Rossini Opera Festival. Now, this is a little bit complicated. Can you talk us through it in the simplest way possible? No, because um, <laughs> there's, some, there's some acronyms here that I don't know what they stand for. Okay, I see. ROF is Rossini. Okay. So, okay, so the Bologna... Opera House says that the ROF, the Rossini Opera Festival, is not willing to credit Bologna as a co-producer, meaning that it is not entitled to state subsidy from the cultural ministry. So what I'm assuming is that they didn't give credit, now they can't get funding. Exactly right. So Bologna is going to start to lose money. money. Right. Because the Rossini Festival is not putting them under their umbrella. And if you're Bologna... And you're in Italy, and the money is already scarce. Yeah. You don't want yeah. to start losing that. So funding. the Rossini Opera Festival hiring fee for the orchestra and course doesn't cover the cost of the lengthy period of the festival. So the Bologna company has decided that it can no longer justify such expense when it is struggling to balance its books. Money, 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 money everywhere. It's all about money. And this is problematic, right? Because these two organizations have worked together... Since 1987, right. so 30 years. It mm -hmm. seems odd to me that it's a round number, by the way. Right. I'm not suggesting that this was, like, planned by one organization or the other, but it seems odd that, like, after exactly 30 years, we're going to end this relationship. Bologna, of course, providing the orchestra and the chorus for the main productions that are done at the Rossini Opera Festival. And... People are not happy well, about this split. So they've, together, they've done 50 video and audio recordings of some of the most important Rossini productions over the period. That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot. And I feel like, like, what's going to, you know, what, so what, they're going to hire in a different orchestra and now it won't be, so it's just, it's going to be weird. The real losers are going to be the Rossini Opera Festival because well, right. the Teatro Comunale di Bologna is going to collaborate now with the Festival Verdi the Parma uh -huh. and Rossetto. And so they are going to move on and now be working on different productions. Different like composer. Oh, yeah. A whole different composer. That's a whole different composer. Rossini to Verdi. Yeah. Yeah, it's like... Yeah. So that's... I mean, good for them. So poor Rossini Opera Festival. I don't know what, what yeah. they're going to do. <laughs> I, I don't know what they're going to do as well. 
There's a wacky Rossini festival in Germany as well. Fun. In Bad Wildbad, which is in the Black Forest, so southwest <gasps> Germany. Cool. Yeah, exactly. When what when is that? It's a, it's in the summertime. Some I uh, some years ago I talked to the artistic director about <sighs> working there. Cool. He turned out to be a total nut job. Fine. So it didn't happen. But uh, that's a beautiful part of the country. Cool. By the way. Maybe I'll try to sneak over while I'm there. Just escape. All right. Last up, the last article for Two Minute Drill to discuss is Port Opera changing its name to Opera Maine. This has always been confusing to me. <laughs> I do know the Port Opera Company. It's based in Portland, Maine. Right. Just by the name, you would always think that, of course, it's in Portland, Oregon. And so they're changing their name to Opera Maine. Uh, according to this article, Caroline Kolker, who's the company's managing director, said, quote, this has been in discussion a long time, and now is the time to do this. That doesn't make any sense okay, to me. Okay, fine, yeah. It Whatever. seems a little random. Whatever she wants to do, I guess, is how that works. This whole show has been about advertising <laughs> in a way, right? Whether it was Krista Ludwig yeah. and the sort of idea of personal advertising, or whether it's this company, Port Opera, changing its name to better reflect its statewide mission. Uh, the company's been around for 23 years. They've had a couple name okay. changes in that time. That's rough. <laughs> it's run by um, Donna Vaughn, who's also the head of opera at the Manhattan School of Music, um, hmm. who actually I have corresponded with, and she's a lovely woman. Mm-hmm. And I think that the programming that they do is great. They're doing a production of Traviata. And then a studio artist production of An American Dream, a new opera commissioned by Seattle Opera that premiered in 2015. I don't know that. Oh I don't know God. this piece at oh, all. It doesn't even give a composer. So. Not to be confused with An American Tale and Fievel. Do you right. remember Fievel? <laughs> Somewhere else. There the, My favorite movie when I was a child. There you go. It was exactly. so sad. <laughs> Hey, you ready to wrap this show up? Yeah, let's do it. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Dinah Fisher, it's been great to have you back on the show. It's been fun. I missed it. You should miss it. I do. I do. It's a good time. Every waking moment. What a show it has been as well. Wow. Krista Ludwig, so Rena Ahmed, the two-minute drill. Time for good call, bad call. What do you got? I got a simple good call. It's the first day of spring here in Chicago, and it's appropriately 50 degrees and cloudy. So after this a week of snow. is what <laughs> spring should feel like, right? Yep, that's about it. In other words, it's the mud season. It's mud and wet and randomly snow, snowing. The kids come in from recess or from playing on the playground. Cute. Soaked. Cute. Covered in mud, so very good. Lots of bath time to be had. <laughs> uh, my good call is the upcoming production of My Fair Lady, the Learner and Low musical mm. at Lyric Opera of Chicago. I just found out is starring one of my childhood actor idols. Okay. A man called Richard E. Grant yeah. is playing Professor oh, Henry Higgins. Oh, that's right. I didn't... Oh, that's awesome. Richard E. Grant, famously from the film With Nail and I, if you've ever seen that film. Uh, he was also in the Spice Girls movie. <gasps> okay, then I for sure know who he is. <laughs> He's utterly brilliant. And I'm going to try everything within my power to interview Ooh. my idol, Richard E. Grant. I might even see the show. I I am seeing the show. And did you hear what they're doing for 2018? Oh, yes. (laughs) Jesus Christ, Superstar. And I'm going to be there. I might go go twice. You might go, oh, wow. Well, then shut down the opera house because George is going twice. (laughs) All right, that's it for this week's show. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. At WNUR, the programming director is Nick Anderson and the general manager is Brack Stussy. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook and Twitter, search for Opera Box Score. Like our Facebook page, share and comment on our posts, or you can just tweet us at Opera Box Score. 
Subscribe, of course, to the podcast that you've just been listening to on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And hey, look, if you like what you hear and you do listen to this podcast on iTunes, just leave a review, please. It's going to take you like 15 seconds. It's definitely the cheapest and it's the fastest way for you to help promote our show. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Dinah Fisher, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera this whole springtime. We're back next Monday, live on air, WNUR 89.3 FM and WNUR.org slash pop-up. Oliver Camacho will be joining us, as well as Dinah Fisher and myself, George Cedarquist. We'll catch you later.